So I don't know what uh, comes to mind when you think of power couples. Uh, power couples have been around, uh, I would argue, and today I'm going to argue, since the beginning uh, of time. But I don't know if the title, power couples, has always been there. Um, if you were to hop uh, on Forbes' website, they put together um, a group of power couples throughout the world. And uh, I thought, well, okay, I'll look at who they've got on their list. And so the very first people that they had on their list are Barack and Michelle Obama as a power couple uh, of 2016. Also, Bill and Melinda Gates. So, of course, Microsoft, uh, Bill Gates is connected there, and his wife, and now they're doing charitable work uh, throughout the world. Uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce made the list, of course. Um, and uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt made the list. This list was obviously put together before they split, so that's awkward, but um, another power couple. Uh, Tom Brady and Giselle Bundchen, okay. Uh, but that seems to be, as I saw the different power couple pictures that they, they took, that's her favorite pose, I found out. And that's um, the most modest dress that she chose to wear on any of the occasions that pictures were taken of her. So um, there you go. And uh, also on Forbes' list was Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. So power couples. I don't know who you would uh, have on your list. Forbes did not have uh, on their list uh, Kanye and Kim. So uh, that was a surprise. Um, but uh, they, didn't, they didn't make Forbes' list. Um, other people throughout the world did. Um, but we're going to talk about power couples for the next few Sundays. And uh, if you had the assignment of coming up with the very first power couple, you might think, as I did, about the very first couple that were ever introduced to in Scripture. And, of course, that's Adam and Eve. So I want to talk about the original power couple, and I want to talk about what they got right. And that's where our outline starts this morning. Well, what did this particular power couple get right? Because any of those couples on Forbes' list are getting something right. They're doing something right. They're doing something that's resonating with the culture, resonating with those who are around them. It's influencing their spheres, and it's making a difference. And not all of it is bad, and not all of it is good. So the same things are happening for this original power couple Adam and Eve. And so I want to look at uh, this morning starting out, what did they get right? Because they got some things right. So if we open up our scriptures to Genesis, that's the, of course the very first book. It's an easy one to find. And if you want a page to chapter 2 right at the beginning, um, that's where we're going to start. And we're going to spend, we're going to spend most of our time uh, just in Genesis 2 and then in Genesis chapter 3. So Chapter 1 in Genesis is kind of an overview of the days of creation, and then chapter 2 kind of zeroes in on, in particular, what happens uh, on that sixth day of creation. And so if you look at chapter 2, starting in verse 15, let's look at 15 and 18. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. And in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So one of the first things that Adam and Eve as a couple got right 
was that they knew what they were about. They had a really clear sense of purpose. Their lives had direction. They knew what they needed to do. They were focused on that, and it was a God-given task. It was a God-given mission. It was given first to Adam, and then God brought Eve to the man to help him with the task that God had called the both of them to. So tending and watching over the garden, exercising dominion and mastery over creation, that was on the agenda. And there was balance and harmony, and creation worked with rather than against Adam and Eve. But one of the first things that they got right is that they had a clarity about what they were about as a couple. If you think about any of those other power couples that we mentioned at the beginning of the message, those couples often have a sense about what they're about, right? They, they have a clear sense of purpose. They, you might even say they have a mission. Some, some couples can together orient themselves around a common purpose. That makes a really deep impact. It makes a big impact. And of course, for Adam and Eve, uh, it did make a huge impact. So not only did they know what they were about, clear sense of purpose, but they also walked with God. We learn that from the eighth verse of chapter 3, which says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So there's a lot going on in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and unfortunately we don't have time to go into all of it, but one of the things that chapter 3 reveals in this short little verse is that the person that they were interacting with, the Lord God that they were interacting with, was able to walk, that he had a form that to them was, they were able to relate to. So theologians, and I, would, I don't disagree with many of the theologians who believe that this is a pre-incarnate Christ, that this is Jesus uh, in his pre-incarnate um, body, and that they are talking, walking, interacting together. So the Hebrews have understood God to be personal since the very beginning. And that's the God of the Bible, which is very different than other conceptions of gods that are out there in the world today, uh, many which are not personal. Um, but this, and I, for instance, I'm reflecting just on the impersonal nature, for instance, of the Force. Star Wars has uh, just had a movie released recently. And so, again, just reflecting on the theology of Star Wars and that the Force somehow has a will. Well, as soon as you start talking about that, you're talking about something that is a quality that only people possess. They have a will a sentient being. Um, and so uh, we don't get a whole lot of that picture in the force, but we do get a lot of that in the Hebrew Bible. And walking with God, which I think for Adam and Eve meant a relationship. It meant that they were interacting on a very personal level. So this was not interacting with God in some of the ways that we're familiar with, such as uh, with coming, sitting, <laughs> listening, uh, that's not real interactive, uh, what we're doing right now. Um, this is you listening and me talking. That's not how it was in the garden for Adam and Eve. It was much more personal, probably closer to what you guys have going on at a dinner table uh, at home. There's a lot of back and forth. You're enjoying one another. You're laughing together. That kind of personal context is, I think, exactly what Adam and Eve were experiencing uh, with God. And they walked with God. So they knew what they were about, they walked with God, and, wonderfully, they had no shame. 
that's in verse 25, the text specifically draws our attention to that. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. It's always an awkward verse to read in church. But there it is. And it's interesting that right at the beginning of the story, Moses, who is the author of this text, uh, God relaying to Moses the story and Moses writing the story down, that God wanted us as the audience to, to know this particular detail. Not every detail is talked about uh, in, in uh, the creation story, but this particular one is specifically mentioned. So the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Now, to Adam and Eve pre-forbidden fruit, this wouldn't be remarkable, right? There's, there would be nothing notable about that particular phrase. But for everyone who comes after, that phrase sort of jumps off the text. Uh, wow, what do you, how, does, how does that work? How are you able to be naked and yet not feel the, the impulse to cover, or at least to have some flinch of shame. Uh, most of us would recognize that's not normal. <laughs> that's unusual. But it is something that they got right. Shame doesn't enhance relationships. Uh, covering and hiding doesn't enhance intimacy. Uh, rather, it wrecks intimacy and connectedness. So shame is toxic. Shame is a cancer uh, on relationships and intimacy. But in the garden, what they got right was that they were able to banish shame. It didn't occur to them. It didn't require calculation. They were able to be completely vulnerable with one another. And so that ease of connection, that trust, that connectedness, that's what they got right. And when you think about power couples that you might admire, my guess is that you have a sense that this couple is connected in a way that reminds you of that, that there's an openness, a trust, that they are one. And that's inspiring when you see it because it, it is relatively unusual to see a couple, two different independent people who are connected and one like that. That's inspiring. So they got some things right. Of course, they got some things wrong. We want to mention that. Uh, one of the things they got wrong is that they did not talk about their fears and their doubts. They didn't talk about those fears and doubts with each other. The text doesn't reveal any evidence that they talked with one another about fears and doubts that they were having. And there's no record that they talked about those fears and doubts with God. So they had a relationship with God. They're walking with God. They're talking with God. He's visiting with them in the garden. And yet there is no record that they talked about their fears and doubts. So sometimes you use the phrase, wow, that person's really in their head, or you might say that to someone, you know, are you, are you in there? <laughs> You're not saying anything. Uh, it's unlikely that that person is completely out to lunch. What's more likely is that they are thinking about things which they're choosing not to reveal to whoever they're with. Adam and Eve did that. I would suggest that that's actually something that they got wrong. If you look at verse one through five of chapter three, get a little bit of context for this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? 
Now, we don't have time to dissect the nature of the lies that the enemy is introducing here, but it's interesting how he gets started. <clears throat> and uh, if you're in sales, maybe this technique is familiar to you. Of course we may eat from the fruit of the tree of the garden, the woman replied, because of course the serpent knows that, right? <clears throat> so she's able to correct the perceived misperception of the serpent, and then she goes on to clarify, it's, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. And here she quotes secondhand God when she said, God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. And of course, I don't know where the mix-up in communication happened, if that was on Adam, if that was on Eve, who is that on? And thus starts the communication problems, right, between couples that continues. You said that. No, I didn't. I said this. No, I heard you say that. No. Right? If you've been with anyone for any length of time, you know that that conversation is pretty normal. God didn't say they can't touch it. That wasn't part of what God said. He only said don't eat it. He said you can look at it. You know, whatever. You can... Do anything you want, just don't eat it. Well, the serpent pushes back right away, you won't die, in verse 4. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And then in verse 6, we have this interesting verse. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. So I don't know the timing because it's not exactly clear the timing. Did the temptation and the taking of the fruit and the eating of the fruit, did it all happen at the same time? Was there a lag time between the temptation and the taking of the fruit? Um, unfortunately, with the information we have here, there's not enough clarity to say for sure. So it's possible that Adam is listening to all of this going on, and he chooses to stay silent. So again, he's not talking if he's there, but of course Eve isn't talking either. She's not talking to God about the questions that have been raised by the serpent. She's not talking to her husband about the questions that have been raised by the serpent. So nobody's allowing any input on, in their inner world. For couples who get off track, that's one of the things that happens. They disconnect from one another in their inner life, in their inner world. They stop sharing fears and doubts with one another. And it's interesting that that happened pre-fall, right? This is before the fruit was consumed. So breakdowns in communication, misunderstanding, and an instinct to keep some of these thoughts to themselves. All of that happened before sin entered the equation. It does tell us something that though humanity was sinless and in that way complete or perfect, it was still finite, right? Adam and Eve still had limits. They weren't infinite. They weren't, uh, they weren't limitless. They, they had definite constraints on their intellect, 
and relationally on their impulses. There were still limits. Well, the woman took the fruit, she ate it, she gave it some of her, uh, to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. I think verse 6 also tells us another thing that they got wrong. They trusted their reason over God's truth. So God's spoken word to them, his spoken word was not enough for either of them, Adam or Eve. So when we read in verse 6, what we read there is that there was an intellectual transformation that happened for Eve. The information that she had from God, the temptation that she got from Satan, put those together. She doesn't talk to anyone about what's going on inside of her head, but she becomes convinced. So she's, she's independent in that way, thinking through those things on her own, not sure where Adam is in all of this, relationally or literally, but she's convinced. So she trusted something. What did she trust? She trusted her ability to figure things out, to lay out a course of action, to follow that to her goal. We're all familiar with how that works. That's how we make decisions. We think about things, we evaluate them, and we go. And we expect an outcome. And that's fine, except that there are so many times when God's expressed will has something to say about the goals, the path, the direction, the outcome that we're looking for. God often has direction for us. And what Adam and Eve got wrong is that that was irrelevant or that they flatly contradicted it. That didn't matter to them. They, they knew better or they knew differently. And again, they're not talking to one another. So this is all internal dialogue. So I would just invite those of us reflecting on how many of these characteristics can we see sort of in our own experience, in our own lives, in our own relationships. Do we clam up when we're not sure about something, when we're confused about something, when we're afraid of something, when we have doubts about something? If you're in a committed relationship, are you sharing that with your partner? If you're in a family, is there someone that you're connected to who you're talking to about that. If you have a close friend, is that someone who is able to connect with you around those things? If you're isolated, chances are that's not a good thing. God didn't design you to be isolated, and that's one of the things that Adam and Eve got wrong. They didn't share. They trusted their reason over God's truth. And lastly, they perfected the blame-shame game. <laughs> they perfected the blame-shame game. So. You have something going on in verse 7, which I would argue we will see in every power couple that we look at in Scripture, so the couples that we're going to see that Jeremy's going to talk about, but also in our culture. When things go wrong for couples, power couples, or any individual, what they're doing is what our first parents did. Genesis 3-7 says, At that moment, as they ate, their eyes were opened. And what happened when they knew good from evil? It says here that they suddenly felt shame. New experience. We all know that experience. New to them. And what did they feel shame about? In particular, it was that they weren't covered. So that occurred to them instinctively and immediately. Oh wait, we're naked. And so what did they do after they felt shame 
at their exposure, they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. All right? So the instinct is I will come up with something that I can grab, improvise here, to somehow reduce or maybe even eliminate the experience of shame that I'm having. And so Adam and Eve do this, not real sophisticated, and we may come up with more sophisticated ways than fig leaves to cover our shame, and yet that's the very same thing that we do. So shame and the fear of exposure leads to covering. And then if you know the story, what did they do after they covered themselves? Well, they heard God walking in the garden. And so Adam says, I hid. I hid. And then he goes on to say, I was afraid because I was naked. That's in verse 10 of chapter 3. And then God goes on to say in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? So here begins accountability, right? So God is coming. He's relationally connecting with them. They're hiding. So just being clear, and I actually have a whiteboard here because I think that this particular uh, equation works itself out so frequently in relationships that I think it's worth paying attention to. And I would invite you, I know that from time to time people get together for lunches and they, they say, you know, what did you think of the sermon today? <laughs> what did you think of the worship today? So if you have that conversation and you're evaluating uh, the communicator, just talk about this particular equation. So shame, first experience that Adam and Eve have once they encounter the knowledge of good and evil. And that leads to according to Adam, fear. And he says he was afraid because he was naked. So the shame of their nakedness led to fear. And what was the very next thing that that fear drove them to do in the text? And that was to start stitching together somehow fig leaves. So they, their fear drives them to cover. Cover what? Cover their shame. And then what does that covering eventually lead to? Hiding. Especially when God wants to have a relationship with them. When he shows up ready to connect with them relationally, that's when their impulse to hide is the greatest. The exposure to God relationally instinctively creates this desire to hide. So talk about if you're going to talk about it. This equation, shame leading to fear, leading to covering, leading to hiding. This is something they got wrong, but it's something that they did instinctively. And I would argue that this is the same pattern that plays itself out any time we experience shame. The impulse, because of fear, to cover and then to hide. How do we do that relationally? by most of your ages, you're really sophisticated. There's some pretty impressive ways that you've developed over the years to both cover and to hide relationally. Some of you are a little less sophisticated, some of you are more, uh, but we all develop these strategies. So I'd invite you to just reflect on that and whether or not that's something that you think is operating in your life. Well, 
not only is there the flame shame hiding game going on, there's, there's also just the old-fashioned, it's your fault, right? So the man replied after he's held accountable, uh, it was the woman, and it was the woman that you gave me, who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. So um, in the counseling world, we call this the victim mindset. <laughs> it's pathological. It's actually criminal thinking that Adam was powerless to stop the experiences that were happening to him. He, of course, he wasn't. But this was his instinct. I couldn't stop it. It's actually, you know, you gave me a defective person, and then she gave me something, and, you know, I, I just ate it. You know? That same mentality, you'll hear it. Just listen for it. I'll bet before the day is out, you'll hear somebody somewhere demonstrating a victim mindset. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't, you know, it was too much. We minimize our own responsibility and our own power. We just do it instinctively. And then the Lord turns to the woman. It's interesting. I mean, he could have just totally smashed Adam right there. There's so much I would have said to Adam. Like, really? Seriously? Uh, but God chose to go next door. And he asks the woman, what have you done? And the, she said, the serpent deceived me. This, she's taken cues from Adam. Another victim mindset. Uh, he, he told me something that wasn't true. And that's why I ate. Well, to her credit, she's a little bit more connected to what was going on. Her victim mindset perhaps isn't as well developed as her husband's. But she's still got it going on. And what is it? So Adam throws God under the bus. He throws Eve under the bus. He throws his own volitional accountability under the bus. And then he, Eve does a similar thing. She throws herself under the bus. You know, I, I didn't get it. I got confused. So she throws herself under the bus. And of course, the serpent. In verse 16, what we read is that God said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband and he will rule over you so there's things they got right there's things they got wrong and then they left a legacy and that's the third blank on your outline they left a legacy what was their legacy that they left well they left a legacy of cursing thanks a lot cursing on relationship. So the curse for women that God gave to females throughout all of time is a curse on relationship. So if you look at what Eve is cursed in, she's cursed in essentially, I would argue, a relational way. She's the only one who can give birth and she's giving birth to relationship. She's got relationship going on even in utero. There's a connectedness that's different than Adam's connectedness with his child while she is um, carrying that child. There is something unique about the way in which women can connect relationally, not only with their children, but with others. And that impact is cursed. And she will not only experience pain in pregnancy and in birth, there's going to be this distortion and manipulation going on in her relationship with Adam and unfortunately he is going to rule over you 
Now, this is not a good thing. This is not something we want to get back to. This is the curse. So this isn't, this isn't like um, a good order for the home. When we see manipulation and, and control going on in a home, that's an expression of the curse. That's what instinctively happens as a result of the curse, but that's not God's design. So I think we do need to recognize that the head of the household, sort of putting his foot down, king of the castle, that, all that deal, that's, all the, that's the curse. That's the expression of the curse. That's not godly. That's not God's design. That's not his will. But it is the curse. And so the impulse to control relationships for Eve, I would argue, because of this curse and, and uh, all who follow, the impulse to control relationships is now an inextricable element of relationships. That is, that manipulation and the desire to control the outcome in relationships is woven into the fabric of how relationships work. The curse for men, verses 17 through 19. And the man said, and to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So for Adam, his curse primarily shows up not in relationship, but in impact. What was his very first job? To tend and watch over the garden. This, this is a gardener. He's connected to the work that he's doing literally through the soil. And his curse is on his impact. So what does that mean? It means that Adam and those who follow will have to feast on inadequacy every day. That their best will rarely be enough and never be enough for very long. That what men put their hand to is undone. It's unwound. If you know the myth, myth of Sisyphus, that's the curse for men. That there's nothing you can do that's going to last very long. Why is it that in antiquity we have these giant monuments to these men? What is that about? Why do a giant pyramid? What is that about? I, I would argue that that's every man's instinctive understanding that I am dust. And that that's really all I can accomplish. And so I want to defy that. I want to push back on that. I don't want that to be my legacy. I want to make a difference. So I'll put all these blocks together in the desert and I'll kill tens of thousands of people, my workers, to do it so that I can prove to myself that the curse isn't going to master me. And I would argue that any of us, men, women, when we are more dedicated to work than we are to relationship, when we use work as a drug, to try to cope with difficulty in our lives as an emotional coping mechanism. We're falling right into that same kind of trap that I will use my strength, my impact, the difference I can make, the thing that I'm good at, I will use that to defy the ever-present awareness that I'm not enough, that I'm inadequate. It's an awful, it's an awful curse and it continues to echo. And not only that, there's a curse for humanity. 
verses 16 and 17, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And of course, die they did. But when the Bible talks about death, it doesn't just talk about the cessation of the physical body functioning and turning into dust. Death is separation from God, spiritual separation from God. Every person's eternal. Scripture teaches that clearly. And your eternal being separated from God is what the Bible describes as death. And that's what God is saying is going to happen to Adam and everyone who follows him. So the curse from humanity is separation from God. And in Romans 5.12 we read, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. So if you have wondered if you've encountered sinners in your life, if they die, the answer is yes, sooner or later. And if you anticipate your death, chances are, according to Scripture, that you too are part of the curse, that sin is operating in your body too. But not just in humanity, in all of creation. Romans 8 tells us that. 21 and 22, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the last blank, how to push back, and really it's how to push back on the curse. The only hope that we have to push back on the curse is Jesus. That's it. All of our eggs are in that one basket called Jesus. That's the only way to have any hope of traction in the pushing back of the legacy of the curse that Adam and Eve have given to us, their children. So Jesus is our only hope. Romans 5, 14 through 16. And I, I didn't develop this message with Romans 5 in mind, but I love how it illustrates the very same principles we've been talking about this entire time. So starting in verse 14, still everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God, as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to being made right with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. Verse 18, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. What a wonderful contrast. So Adam and Eve's legacy is condemnation, death, and the curse. Jesus' legacy is redemption and life. Life, in the biblical sense, means being connected to God relationally. You can get connected with God relationally when you share his righteousness. 
You share the righteousness of God when you believe the promises of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who died to pay the moral debt that we owe God because of our sin. Believing that promise of God brings a person from separation from God relationally into a family relationship with God. You become a child of God by the act of believing, believing the promises of God, that you can trust Jesus to pay for your moral debt to God because of your sin. So because of the empowering work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of every person who chooses to believe that promise of God, and when the Holy Spirit is in you, he is empowering you to make choices to defy the hold of the curse on you. And that's called submission and obedience to the Lord. That's called picking up your cross daily and dying to the self, to the old self, the part of yourself that's still pulling you towards the legacy of the curse. Jesus is the only hope to have a different outcome, a different way of living. So watch for the impulse to protect yourself at the expense of others. Watch for the impulse to control others through manipulation. Watch for the impulse to disconnect and to get lost in task and in work. So you're going to leave a legacy, and my parting question to you is, will you be leaving a legacy on purpose or by default? Will you be leaving a legacy on purpose or by accident? Because you will leave a legacy, won't you? Someone will remember your existence. Someone will reflect on your impact. What will they reflect on? What will the impact be? Well, with Jesus, it can be a profound impact, and it can last.